We'll be in Luke chapter 18 today, and once you've turned there, you can stand for the reading of God's word. And I'll be reading from verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Church, once more, would you just join me in a brief word of prayer? God, we pray for our time together this evening as we open up your word, that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear all that you have for us. You would give us sensitivity to your word as it is read aloud now and as it is uh, studied, and that we would see what there is in the text, that your spirit would move among us uh, to reveal to us what we cannot see uh, in our own natural state. And that by your grace, you would be pleased to give us uh, sight uh, into your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, last week, we spent a little bit of time in Luke's gospel, uh, just kind of picking up some of the through lines in the text, uh, particularly the through line of the Messiah who comes not just as the, the coming king who comes to rule and to reign, but also the Messiah who would come as the one who suffers on behalf of his people. Uh, This is highlighted in the text, particularly in verse uh, 31 and following, where Jesus speaks about himself uh, in these terms and reveals himself to the disciples, particularly in verse 33, uh, saying that he is one who will be flogged and killed, and on the third day after these shameful things happen to him, he will rise. And at that moment, uh, one of the things we we reflected on last week is that the disciples, uh, they're not putting it together. They're They're not getting what Jesus is saying. They're not 
quite understanding all the thrust of what is, is going on. In fact, the text says to us three times, they don't get it, they don't get it, they don't get it. And funny enough, uh, the disciples are the third group uh, in, that, in this last section of Luke's gospel who hasn't quite gotten, uh, gotten the truth. They hear the words, they hear what Jesus is teaching, but they don't quite put two and two together. They're not putting all the logic together. For instance, uh, if you'll just look at chapter 18, verse 9, uh, you'll remember that Jesus told them this parable about two men who go to pray in the temple. And of those two men, we meet in verse 13, the tax collector. Uh, and the tax collector beats his breast, going towards heaven and, uh, and crying out, uh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, right? The tax collector gets it. But he's contrasted in this text, remember, in verse 10, or sorry, verse 11, with the Pharisee. And the Pharisee prays about himself in these terms, Lord God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and tithe of all that I get. Now, in that text, uh, one of the things Luke is telling us is one of these people gets it, and the other, people, the other person doesn't get it, right? The Pharisee does not get what's going on, and the tax collector does. The tax collector responds appropriately. And then we meet uh, in the section with the children, verses 15 and 16 and 17, the disciples who don't get it, uh, this is the second time they don't get it in the text. And, uh, and the children who do, the children who know they ought to come to the king uh, with a faith uh, that is dependent and humble, and the disciples who want to keep them away from the king. And then the third man who we meet who doesn't quite get it is the rich ruler. And this, this man comes to Jesus essentially saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, what about the Ten Commandments? And he says, remember, famously and rather blindly about himself, all these things I have kept from my youth. And the rich man doesn't get it. And here in the text, we meet a blind beggar, one who has no ability to see, and yet he sees more clearly in the text than almost any other character we've met in chapter 18. He sees clearly what's going on, even though he doesn't have physical sight. It's actually one of, the, one of the beautiful poetic and narratival things that's going on in the text, is that this man has no eyes to see, and yet his, his sight is crystal clear when it comes to observing who Jesus is and what he is like. And the second man who we meet is another man who can't see, Zacchaeus, not because he's blind, but because he's too short. So he has to go and gain a vantage point to see who Jesus is and what he is like, and uh, that leads to the mercy coming upon him, salvation coming to his house. And in these uh, closing parables in Luke's gospel, we, we find a culmination of many of the themes that Luke has already laid out, particularly the theme that I laid aside for us last week, the Davidic king, what he is like. Uh, that theme is picked up on and magnified in verses 35 uh, and following of chapter 18 all the way through chapter 19, verse 10, because the Davidic king is one of those messianic motifs that, that Luke is drawing upon, that Luke's laying down for us. So whereas last week I said we're going to focus on the suffering servant aspect of the Messiah, in these verses I would like us to highlight the Davidic king aspect of the Messiah, and particularly see how Luke is drawing to a culminating point who the Messiah is, who the king is, and ultimately, uh, how does that match with, with healing and with salvation, right? Who is the king and, and how does that match with healing and salvation? 
Now, in order to understand Luke's gospel style, I think it's helpful to maybe give a modern example of what this would be like. Uh, perhaps you've seen uh, a TV show like 60 Minutes or an interview style TV show, some kind of documentary where narratives or historical events that have happened are retold not from one vantage point, not from the aspect of one story like a movie is told, but rather from multiple different witnesses who either interacted with or observed the events that occurred. And via a number of interviews and discussions kind of all spliced together, what happens is a clear picture, a detailed picture is painted of, of what's going on in the story. When I was in high school uh, on 9-11, one of the things we would do in the public schools was we would watch documentaries that showed from multiple angles eyewitness accounts and retellings of the events transpiring in 9-11. There would be the person who is in air traffic control who would talk about how they were losing contact with the plane as it was being hijacked. Or there were the people on the ground who said they observed one plane and another plane flying into the building. Or there were the firefighters who were being interviewed and telling how they received the calls not knowing what was happening and just rushing into the scene. The point is there's multiple perspectives, multiple witnesses that are all telling the same story from, from multiple angles. Now what the, the writers of documentaries have to do is they have to cobble together all these independent lines of testimony and sit these people down and, and get them to tell a cohesive account, at least from their angle of what's going on. And then they later sit down with all their notes, all the video footage, all the media files, and they cobble together a coherent narrative so that you and I, when we're watching it, can make sense of all of the eyewitness detail that has actually been observed, right? There's much eyewitness detail, but the documentary editor has to make sense of the material. Luke's gospel is, is much like that because Luke tells us at the outset of his gospel, he sits down to write a coherent account of the things which have happened. And he does so as, as a man who has, as many commentators observe throughout his gospel, these random details of eyewitness account that seem to indicate he interviewed the people who were in these events in a way that Matthew and Mark probably weren't able to. One of these is this blind beggar story uh, where we see that he adds details that Matthew and Mark don't have in the text. For instance, he adds this detail about the blind beggar's scuffle with the crowd where he cries out and the crowd tells him to be quiet and then he cries out again. That's an expanded detail that is uh, more expanded than it is in Matthew or in Mark. And only Luke has the story of Zacchaeus the story of, of Zacchaeus who comes into uh, contact with Jesus as a tax collector. And he has all these amazing eyewitness details, like the fact that Zacchaeus is too short to see Jesus from the crowd, so he has to climb up into a tree. And you can imagine Luke interviewing these two men at some point down the road after these events have transpired, and, and him just telling them, tell me what it would be like, or tell me what it was like, when you encountered Jesus of Nazareth. Tell me what it was like when you bumped into him what was that interaction like? And you can imagine the, the events, the eyewitnesses telling all these kind of random details. And he cobbles it together and puts the stories together in a way that you and I can understand the narratives that he's giving to us. Now, that being said, he puts these stories together for two reasons. One is that they're both kind of on the same journey, right? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel. And here he's, uh, uh, let's say temporally, he's, he's going towards Jericho. So he's drawing near to Jericho in the first verse, verse 35, and he entering Jericho in chapter 19 and verse 1. So both Zacchaeus and the beggar are part of this Jericho episode on his road into Jerusalem. And, and more than that, they highlight different aspects of the same idea that Jesus is the king 
who saves his people in a particular kind of way. Now, with all of the uh, cosmic understandings of what Jesus does, the fact that Jesus comes to save his people as a suffering servant from their sins, it's often easy for you and I to abstract those ideas away from flesh and blood humans and to say things like, Jesus has this really important mission. He's the cosmic savior of humanity. And we make humanity more of an abstraction rather than particular individual people who are saved. So it's interesting to me that as soon as Luke highlights Jesus telling his disciples one last time how he is to die on behalf of his people, the very next episode we get, the very next two episodes, highlight two individuals who are rather scorned and despised by society that Jesus kind of sweeps up into the salvation narrative just to remind us of the fact that Jesus actually loves individual people. He saves individual people from their afflictions. And he is a king who is, yes, ruler over all the world, and also uh, an individual lover of men. He loves Zacchaeus intimately and closely, seeing him and forgiving him, and also the blind beggar. He loves him and heals him and shows mercy upon him. And these episodes highlight for us the kind of intimacy that Jesus is in his Gospels. So why these events? Why now? Well, firstly, uh, particularly as we look at verse 35, Observe the fact that the man who is to be healed is a blind man. Verse 35, as Jesus draws near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired about what this meant. So he can't see, so he's got to obviously interact with the crowd. And he hears a commotion, a shuffle, probably the people who are following after Jesus and following his teaching. And he observes all this commotion with his ears, and he probably asks a person in the crowd, what is this that is going on? And this blind man is not here by any accident because one of the first things that Jesus does in the Gospel of Luke, one of the first things he does is he opens the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and he reads a prophecy from that scroll. And he says in that prophecy, one of the things that the Son of Man comes to do is to give sight to the blind. Now, up until this point in Luke's Gospel, uh, no blind people have been healed as an individual account. There's in chapter 7, where John the Baptist comes to Jesus asking him, are you really the son of man or should we look for another? And Jesus says, goes, goes and heals a bunch of people, casts out demons and says to him, go and tell your master what you have seen uh, because he's highlighting that he is the one who fulfills messianic expectation. And here as Jesus comes into Jerusalem through Jericho, uh, we are highlighting once again the fact that he, that he heals the blind man, fulfilling the prophecy laid down in Luke chapter 4. He is the messianic expectation that Isaiah talks about. But not only that, the blind man addresses him not as what he's told to address him as, but as a different name. Notice the flip in verse 37. When the crowd speaks to the man, they say, it's Jesus of Nazareth who is passing by. And when he cries out, verse 38, he cries out, Jesus, son of David. Now that ought not to be lost on us because what he's, uh, he's demonstrating there is he's demonstrating an awareness and acknowledgement about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. He's a blind man who's about to receive an amazing healing, but he says something profoundly which demonstrates he already has a kind of sight about him. Now, to to see this, uh, you need to go all the way back to chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel, particularly verses 31 and 32, where the angel announces to Mary about the forecoming of the birth of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, 
when, he, when the angel tells, tell, talks to Mary, he says this, describing the king. He, being Jesus, will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So the, the aspect of being the son of David is something the angel says, hey, this will be true about the child who is to be born to you. And then uh, this blind man rather profoundly observes that Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's Jesus, son of David, the Messiah who was predicted. Uh, we, we could say it this way. What Luke told us the angel said is true is true from the perspective of the blind man. He observes the same thing. And he observed it, likely because while all these, hear, all these miracles are happening, uh, news is traveling fast about Jesus, right? We already know that Jesus has a following crowd who goes with him everywhere. They hear his teaching. They observe his miracles. So we already know that news about Jesus is spreading fast. Jesus has sent his disciples into various cities to proclaim his gospel message. Jesus is, at this point in the gospel, right before his crucifixion, at the peak of his popularity or at the peak of his public ministry. And so news about him is spreading rather quickly through all these towns and cities. And so this blind man has likely heard news of this man, this Jewish prophet rabbi, who's coming around, who is, is performing miracles, and who is saying all kinds of strange things like, I can forgive sin. And this blind man sitting on the side of the road is putting two and two together and saying, well, if all this is true, if all this is true, this must be the man who the prophet Isaiah spoke about. This must be the man who is the son of David, the Messiah who is to come. And rather profoundly, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front, meaning in front of the crowd, rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But that only made him cry out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. What's amazing in this episode uh, is there's people in the crowd following Jesus, knowing that Jesus does miracles, who want this man who's blind to not experience a miracle uh, mediated through Jesus. It's amazing that those who are traveling with Jesus, listening to his teaching so much so that they've left their lives behind and are following along with him, still don't quite get it. They still don't quite get that Jesus is the one who comes to save people just like this from their predicament. And I think that presents a place in the text where we can pull over and just reflect about the fact that often it is the case that Christians and the church can lose their mission of who Christ came to save. So often, the more we learn about theology and doctrine and worship, uh, it, it creates within us a kind of in-group, out-group kind of mentality. A kind of dynamic where the church sees itself as this thing, and there's a gap, and then there's people over there who still don't have Jesus. And rather than saying, let's make Jesus accessible by proclaiming him and offering him as the means of salvation, uh, we are rather closed off and hostile to a world that needs him. And here, illustrated by the crowd, those who are traveling with Jesus, making Jesus almost inaccessible to the blind man by, by telling him to be quiet, right? They've, these are people who've heard his teaching. They've observed his miracles. It is implied that they get Jesus's agenda, and yet they totally miss his agenda. And that doesn't stop the blind man. He cries out once again, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And notice Jesus once again demonstrating the consistency of his character to see those who are broken. Says these words. Or sorry, just uh, pulls over, stops. 
and commands this man to be brought toward him. And when he came near, he asked of him, what do you want me to do for you? It's a strange question. Much like the paralytic who is lame, uh, and it's obvious to everyone around that this is his issue, uh, the blind man's issue would have been obvious, right? Uh, This is a man who's going to stand out as a beggar, as rather uh, run down. He's not going to be the kind of person who's put together well, and he's going to be obvious, it's going to be obvious to Jesus, obvious to everyone else, that this man has a physical affliction. He can't see, he's blind. So that Jesus asked this question is rather strange, but Jesus already has shown that he asks kind of set up questions, questions that reveal to us who these people are and what they really need from Jesus. And this man says to him, Lord, let me recover my sight. Now you might say, you might think, this man is coming to Jesus purely for selfish gain. He comes to Jesus purely for the healing, and he has no other aspects of faith that he's demonstrating here. It's rather a a kind of exchange that's going on. But what's interesting about this blind man, as contrasted with the crowd that's following Jesus, is he's expecting Jesus to be able to do this kind of thing. He goes to Jesus to be able to do this kind of thing. And he's right on with who Jesus is because, well, the messianic expectation is that Jesus brings sight to the blind. So he's kind of stepping right in the middle of what God has said is true about the Messiah and saying, hey, Jesus, can you do that thing? Can you do that thing that I have already professed you to be? the son of David. And so he's calling him son of David. That combined with the asking of healing of sight to the blind should tell us this this man is not uh, just doing an exchange where he goes to Jesus for something, but he's going to Jesus as the Messiah for something. There's a big difference between those two. One is Jesus as like a genie in the bottle where you just go to him because you need some deliverance, some help. And another is, well, if you're a Christian, You go to Jesus all the time for things that you need, but not because you're trying to exchange this for that, but because you know that he's the one you go to when you need this kind of thing done. Think about all the times that you've prayed for salvation for someone who uh, you needed to hear the gospel and believe it. Think about all the times you've prayed for God to uh, heal someone who was struggling with disease. Think about all the times you've prayed for uh, yourself to be uh, freed of sin or someone you love to be freed of sin. You go to Jesus because he's in the business of doing that kind of thing. It's, it's what he's known for. It's his brand. It's who he is and what he does. And, it, and we don't just believe that about him. He tells us that that's who he is and what he does. And so for this blind man to go to Jesus and ask this exact kind of thing is, is right on schedule with who Jesus is and what he does. He's, he's being rather faithful to what we learned earlier in Luke's gospel about prayer, That when we go to the Lord to ask him for things, we ask him for things that he has already promised to give to us. He promises to give his people daily bread. He promises to care for them. He promises to forgive them of their sins. And so when we go to the Lord in the Lord's prayer, uh, we are simply asking Jesus for things which he has already promised to give to his people. And here too, this blind man goes to Jesus as the Messiah to ask the Messiah for things that the Messiah has already promised to be in the business of doing, giving sight to the blind. In fact, it's the very first thing that Jesus says he does publicly in Isaiah 61, read in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He gives sight to the blind. This is who he is. This is what he does. And this dynamic is amazing because once again, the consistency of Jesus is such that we 
are almost used to it at this point in Luke's gospel. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And the words don't even surprise us. Verse 43, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now those words, he immediately was healed. He was immediately able to recover his sight is to contrast the healing of Jesus with the healing of charlatans or those who would fabricate healing miracles. Jesus' healing miracles are always, in Luke's gospel, immediate, undeniable, and obvious for everyone to see. Uh, it's, it's not like you can go and say, well, that was a sleight of hand, or he swapped this man out for another man, or something like that. Uh, Jesus' healing is undeniable proof that he has done it. And once again, uh, Luke has highlighted this a number of times, but every time Jesus heals, it is an immediate uh, reception of that healing. It's because he is God Almighty, he commands the earth itself, and he commands creation itself to move as it would. And so this man is healed, he recovers his sight, and he glorifies God, and all the people who are in the crowd, uh, probably the same people who were keeping this man at arm's length, notice their heart posture change when they respond in worship, giving praise to God. And this is the appropriate response when God provides a miracle. This is the appropriate response when God moves in our lives, is that we ought to praise him. This is why as believers we practice not just regular prayer, but also we sing worship, and we give prayers of thanksgiving to God for all that he moves and does. But also there's a, a unique thing that happens when God answers a prayer we've been praying, when God answers something we've been asking for a while, he moves in our lives, he moves in someone else's life in a way that we've asked, that it just wells up in our hearts a praise for God who has proved himself to be a God worthy of worship. And I'm sure that you can relate to the idea that when God moves in a way that you've asked him to move, it, it just wells your heart up with thanksgiving and praise. So here the crowd responds just kind of as a contagion with this blind man. He praises glorifying God, and they also give praise to God because he's a God who's worthy of worship. And now we meet, uh, then in the text, this second man, a man who uh, is named Zacchaeus. Uh, he is probably a favorite of many who grew up in the church because uh, he has songs and he has stories. And Zacchaeus uh, is too short to see Jesus in the crowd. And he's a tax collector, which means he is, although a Jew, someone who would be uh, a sellout. He would be the kind of person who is in league with Rome, who would be a vessel of Rome to his people. So he's, he's seen as a traitor by the people. And this tax collector, actually a chief tax collector, meaning he's not just in the business of tax collecting, but he's, he's made some promotions along the way. He's been in this business for a while. He was seeking also to see who Jesus was, but on the count of the crowd, he could not, in this case, because he was small in stature. Now, this is very politically correct of Luke to say, uh, Zacchaeus is a short man. He can't see Jesus. And so what does he do? He's very resourceful. In Jericho, they have these trees uh, that are lush and beautiful, not anymore, but in the time of the first century, uh, many writers will talk about the lush vegetation here in Jericho. And he goes to one of these trees and he runs up the tree, climbing it, so he can sit on the branch and look out into the crowd and see Jesus from a vantage point because Jesus is about to pass, you know, along the way. And when Jesus comes to this place, as Zacchaeus has kind of put himself in the tree, he just wants to see Jesus as he's passing by. 
Jesus comes to the place, looks up to Zacchaeus in the tree, and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now what's strange, you might have noticed it, Zacchaeus never introduces himself to Jesus, and yet Jesus knows his name. Uh, There's a lot that you can think about with that and put together there. But Jesus' mission has already proved to us to be an intentional one, where he goes about the mission of calling his disciples by name to himself, and now he comes to call a tax collector to himself by name. And Zacchaeus is the beneficiary of Christ's intentional seeking and saving those who are outside of his fold. So Zacchaeus hurries and comes down and receives Jesus joyfully coming to his house and hosts him for dinner. And all of the crowd, notice the response of the crowd here again, is to be contrasted with the, let's say, faith of Zacchaeus, faith of the blind man. Because in verse 7, when the crowd sees this, they grumbled. Now this is the same crowd who was just five minutes ago worshiping Jesus on the way in after they see the blind man who's been healed. And they're grumbling because they're saying he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You notice the in-group, out-group mentality of the crowd. They don't quite get it. And they're right to say that Zacchaeus is a sinner, but they're wrong to say that Jesus isn't, you know, going on mission to save just that kind of a person. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, this is probably at his house, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now this statement from Zacchaeus is, is, is a little bit different from the blind man because Zacchaeus is kind of offering this information up freely. Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus responds with joy. The crowd grumbles. And then Zacchaeus says, Lord, all of those who I've defrauded, I will pay back fourfold. And I will also give half of my goods to the poor. Now, the text already told us that he's a tax collector. And there's a lot of background here, but tax collectors in this culture are, uh, are always taking money that's not theirs. It's kind of how they make money. And the chief tax collector uh, would, have, would have been doing this for so long and been so good at it, so effective, that they would have gotten, he would have gotten many promotions along the way. And so it is likely when he says he's going to restore all of those who he's defrauded, it is likely that that's uh, the entire summation of his career as a tax collector. He's about to go and restore to the people whom he has defrauded. Because what tax collectors would do is they would exact the tax from the people, but whatever they could get out of the people on top of what the people owe to Rome, they could pocket that for themselves on top of their normal salary. So how you get rich as a tax collector is you tell the people they owe more to Rome than they actually do, and then you take whatever the margin is and you pocket it. And so he's been stealing from people likely his entire career, likely because he learned it from whoever trained him as a tax collector. And now the question we can ask is, why does he restore the riches which he has stolen? And why does he want to give his riches to the poor? Well, it's because he is, let's say, a typification, the the model of what should happen when, when the rich man encountered Jesus. You remember the rich man, the rich ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, give all your money away and come and follow after me. And he couldn't, he couldn't do that. And here Zacchaeus isn't even asked by Jesus to give up all his money, but he, out of his own conversion, out of his own response, his own heart change, goes to Jesus 
and says to him, I will give up all half of my goods to the poor, and anyone of whom I have defrauded, I will restore it fourfold. Now Zacchaeus is demonstrating to us what repentance looks like when it is actualized in a sinner's life. He is not just saying, oh, I'm sorry for the sins I've committed in the past, and I'll try to do better in the future. He's actually doing something profound, which is he's going to those whom he has offended, whom he has sinned against, and he is going to, within his power, give restitution to them. Now, the text is clear. This is Zacchaeus' own sin that he is restoring, and he is doing it out of a response of conversion and repentance. And it is because when he defrauds these people, the Old Testament law says he actually does owe them this restitution. So he is doing right by God's law. Zacchaeus knows the law. And he actually pays, uh, if you go to Leviticus, you would see that he actually pays four times uh, the amount. That's actually what's prescribed with a little bit of margin in, in Leviticus 6. So he's not doing this without any basis. God's law says if you've defrauded someone to a certain extent, you do restore this much. So he's being obedient to God's word. The generosity which comes out of the top of that is him going above and beyond to show that he actually has a different view on money altogether, and he views his money more as a disposable asset in this life rather than something he is to hoard for himself. Now that should tell us a lot about what repentance and forgiveness looks like because, well, where his sin was, his sin of defrauding people, is where he acts when he comes to faith. When you come to faith in Christ, you might, have, you might think about your own conversion here, uh, something constitutionally changes about you, and it's usually most obvious in the areas where you struggled with sin the most. Whatever sins you struggled with before Christ, when you come to Christ, when you come to faith, you approach those with a different angle of fervor and hostility. You approach them with a different level of, uh, let's say, vigor. When God says, uh, you are mine, you are a new creation, when he gives you new life, one of the things that happens is it changes how you operate in this world. It changes how you engage with your neighbor. And ultimately, it changes how you pursue holiness in this world. Because when God calls sinners to repentance, he doesn't do so because they need to be obedient in order to be forgiven. He does so because when he gives them new hearts, forgiveness uh, and, and forgives them, Obedience just kind of flows and spurts out of that kind of person. The heart that has changed lives in the world differently than the heart that has never been changed. Or maybe I could say it another way. Salvation and, uh, salvation and faith, repentance, ultimately cannot be fabricated. They can be maybe externally faked, but everyone knows down at their heart, by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, whether it is a true or a false confession and repentance. And for Zacchaeus, we see his external fruit, his repentance, and by the confirmation of Jesus' testimony about him, we acknowledge that he truly is acting as a forgiven person. Those who repent and believe on Christ, uh, they demonstrate their faith by their repentance. Their faith is, let's say, worked out in the world in fruit by the fact that they don't sin in the way they used to sin, and in fact, they will seek to restore the broken relationships with their sin has caused. There's much for us to learn about this in a culture that likes to save face. If you are a Christian and you know that you've sinned against someone, you should go to that person and ask for forgiveness. If you're a Christian and you know you've defrauded someone, you should restore to them what you have taken illegitimately. 
as Christians, we, we live out the fact that we have been a forgiven people. Zacchaeus here models for us what that looks like by giving restitution for the things he has stolen. And, and we can recognize that that shows to us his heart really is not bound by finances anymore. He's not like the rich man who says, I've been obedient, but I can't part with my money. He actually says, I can part with my money because God commands me to. And on top of that, I can give more money away. uh, And all of it is because money doesn't have any sway over my heart anymore. It's amazing for a man who was a tax collector for his whole life to receive this kind of a change. And that change can only be indicative of one thing, that salvation indeed has come to his house. Now, one of the things we observe here in the text is what is Jesus's then identification of Zacchaeus. And Jesus says to him in verse 10, today salvation has come to your house. And notice this, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, these are a bunch of theological designations. But when he says to Zacchaeus, you are a son of Abraham, he's putting together an idea in the text that is laid down way early in Luke's gospel. Uh, You'll remember John the Baptist. Actually, we'll we'll just turn there. It's in Luke uh, chapter uh, 3, I believe, uh, where we meet John the Baptist in his uh, ministry of uh, reconciliation, where he prepares the way for the Lord. This is in uh, Luke chapter 3, and uh, uh, beginning in verse 7, I'll read. This is John the Baptist. He said, therefore, to the crowds, that came to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, John the Baptist is saying something. Uh, Maybe we could say it this way. Not all who are ethnically descended of Abraham are children of Abraham, and God can produce children of Abraham from any place, okay? Now, you put that together with the fact that Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's, he's a Jewish person, a tax collector, who's kind of been a sellout to his people, unclean his whole life, most likely. And here, uh, Jesus designates him as a son of Abraham. He's tying together ideas in the text, and Luke is, Luke is keying us into this idea that What is a son of Abraham? A son of Abraham is one who demonstrates faith, like Abraham demonstrates faith, uh, or responds to the Messiah appropriately, right? The promise to Abraham is a promise by faith to be saved, a promise of redemption and a promise of offspring. And so who are the children of Abraham? Who are the true Israelites, according to Luke? Uh, It is those who demonstrate faith. It is those who respond to God by faith, who repent and believe, and whose life actually is the fruit of that kind of repentance. So faith uh, is, we would say, the marker of one who is an offspring of Abraham. Now that is a, a shift in Jewish thinking in particular, because remember, if you're a Jewish person in the first century, children of Abraham are those who are ethnically Jewish. And Paul does a lot in Romans to try to un- unwind this idea Uh, But he particularly says, uh, he says it this way, not all uh, who are of Israel are of Israel, or not all Israel is Israel. But it is the children of Abraham by faith, those who have faith like Abraham, who are truly his sons. And here Luke, who is a traveling companion of Paul, 
establishes that same kind of idea such that uh, you and I today as believers can be considered children of Abraham who have believed by faith in the repentance that he offers to us. Uh, the seed of Abraham, Christ, who we have faith in, he is the one who, let's say, links us to Abraham's promise. So Zacchaeus is the son of Abraham, uh, and also all of those who have faith in the son of Christ, or in Christ, the son of God, are also children of Abraham. And then if you want the theological explanation for all these things, Jesus says it in verse 10, uh, why are all these things so? Why does Zacchaeus respond in faith? Why, why does the blind man come to redemption? Because the Son of Man came seeking and saving that which is lost. The reason Zacchaeus can look on Jesus and see him and be saved by him, the reason the blind man can cry out to Jesus is because Jesus is proximate to them. Maybe another way to say that is because Jesus came into the world to make himself accessible to people so they can repent and believe. So while the texts highlight the blind man who cries out to Jesus and Zacchaeus who looks out of his way to see Jesus, ultimately, it is Jesus who is seeking them the whole time. Jesus is the one who makes himself accessible to the blind man by traveling through Jericho. Jesus is the one who makes himself accessible to Zacchaeus by traveling through Jericho. He's the one who makes himself accessible to humanity by clothing himself in human form and being found in the form of a servant so that he can mediate God to us. Maybe I could say it a different way. If you believe in Christ, it is because Christ has intentionally sought after your heart to call you as his child into faith. That is not you seeking after God, although in some sense it is you pursuing God because he has called you to repentance. But ultimately it is because God has made himself accessible to us through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his perfect sinless sacrifice on the cross, through his resurrection, which he then mediates to uh, be preached as the message of the gospel in the book of Acts and following. And it is the same message... It is the same message that we proclaim today as Christians, that Jesus is the one who seeks and saves sinners. And here is the key. Here is the idea. Uh, Jesus is completing a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, verse 16. You don't need to turn there. But in Ezekiel 34, uh, Jesus is the good shepherd who pursues all of those who are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And here he has got two lost sheep added to his fold. Zacchaeus and a blind man. And as he says in John's gospel, uh, there are many other sheep who I need to go get. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 18, he says to Paul in Corinth, there are many other people in this city who are my people, Paul. So go on proclaiming the gospel in this city. And we might say today, as Jesus tells us, he will be with us to the ends of the earth. Uh, it is not because we vaguely cast our hopes out into the world, hoping that people will respond in faith, but because uh, Jesus is intentionally still, by his spirit and through his gospel, pursuing the hearts of the lost. It is, uh, maybe one way to say it is that Jesus models for us what it is to pursue those who are lost. And so it is the church's mission to take up that mantle and pursue the lost in the same way. We are his disciples. Uh, we should be imitators of him. And ultimately what that means is we pursue those who are lost in the way that Jesus pursued those who are lost by offering repentance, by offering forgiveness, 
by telling them that through Jesus Christ, all of their afflictions and sorrows and woes are dealt with finally. And there was a hope for those who are afflicted. There is forgiveness for those who have sinned. And ultimately, there is a hope of healing and restoration in the life to come. And we proclaim that as the church, as ambassadors of Christ, not because we made that mission up or because Jesus tells us to do so, but ultimately because Jesus himself first did so, and then he passes the mantle to us and says, go and do likewise. He then hands to you and I the mission to go and make disciples. So as believers, as Christians, we ought to ask ourselves the question, uh, how seriously do we take the mission to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, seeking and saving those who are lost? And this is where we might ask ourselves the question, uh, are there other things in our lives, in your life, that vies your attention away from a central kind of focus on the mission that Christ has given to his people? There are many ways to accomplish this mission. Uh, one of the things you could do is you could learn another language and you could go embed yourself overseas to an unreached people group and you could mediate the gospel of Christ to them. Another thing you could do is you could go move to some part of the city where nobody wants to go because they don't like hanging out with those kinds of people and you can embed yourself there to mediate the gospel to those people. Or you can just find anyone in the world who is broken and who recognizes their need for restoration. And you could recognize that here is a ripe harvest field where the Son of Man is seeking and saving those who are lost. Would not the church be better off going there? And that is to be contrasted, I think, with the danger that the crowd represents in these texts of walling off and buckling down and becoming a fortress rather than a missions-focused uh, group. The church in the book of Acts, the church of the New Testament, and the church even of the Reformation is a missional church where everyone is hands on deck, life oriented towards worshiping God and proclaiming his restoration. And one of the dangers I see in the American church, there are many dangers in the American church, but one of the chief dangers I think is the danger of, let's say, complacency or comfort. That it's some wedding of the American dream plus faith practiced on Sunday is the ideal life. And that's just simply not the case. The kind of Christianity that Jesus commends to us, that he commends to his followers, is a Christianity that is boots on the ground, hands on deck, disciple-making, vigorous efforts in seeking and saving those who are outside of his fold. So the church, then, is at its best when it is about that mission. When you go into your communities, into your coworkers, into your friends, and you proclaim to them the mission of Christ, the salvation which he offers. And this is not some, uh, let's say, hypothetical dream of how the church should look. Uh, this is how Jesus models for us and for his disciples how they ought to be in the world. Remember, he sends them out two by two to proclaim the good news. And then he later sends out the 72, two by two to go proclaim good news. Here he goes on his way to death to accomplish the ultimate victory over sin. And he's still, you know, picking up people along the way. The, the highest mission that he has in his earthly ministry is to go to the cross and die so that he can attain sin, so he can attain the forgiveness of sins, the perfect sacrifice. And even with that single focus in mind, he's still sweeping up all these lost people on the way to his own death. And so you can do, Christian, a great deal that God has called you to do, uh, but that should never be at the cost of the mission, which is to make disciples. That should never be at the expense of 
your calling as a church, as the people of God, who are to seek and save those who are lost. Because here's the reality. The king brings salvation to the world. And the church simply announces that proclamation to the world. Because the king brings salvation, we proclaim the salvation that he brings. And it is because he is bringing salvation and he offers salvation that we take like great pains to orient our lives around making that a mission and a message that people can have access to. It is something that we should take seriously as followers of Christ, lest we be like the crowd in these texts. And we learn so much about the character of our Lord, and would it not be the best case scenario for us to follow in his footsteps, being imitators of him as he calls us to be? Let's pray. Father and God, we thank you for your word to us. You are a God who is mighty to save, mighty to redeem, announcing forgiveness and reconciliation and atonement for sins. And Lord, we recognize that as your bride, we are called to carry the mantle, to carry your gospel, to proclaim it to the nations, to the end of the earth, because that is what you have entrusted us with. We recognize that we are slow and faint and we struggle with courage and boldness and all the rest. And yet, Lord, we ask for your grace to be a people who has captured this vision, who understands its urgency, and ultimately, Lord, that we would be the kind of people who can be found as faithful disciples, faithful followers of you. Lord, as we continue in our time tonight of praise, uh, would you enable our hearts to sing glorious worship for all that you've done as is recorded here in the text of Luke's gospel and as we can reflect upon in our own lives. We ask and we pray these things in your name. Amen.